If you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings The power of God displayed in man. And the title of the message this morning is Elijah Calls Down the Fire. Elijah Calls Down the Fire. Well, last week we saw God's power as he worked through the life of Samson. And apart from God working through Samson, he could have never done what he did. We all know that. Despite Samson's sinfulness, God displayed his power in giving Samson incredible strength to tear apart a lion, kill thousands of men with a jawbone, and ultimately destroy the Philistines by destroying the temple where they were meeting in and causing the temple to come crashing down to the ground. It's amazing what God can do through a man to accomplish his own will and to bring himself glory. You know, today we're going to look at the life of a man who God used mightily. And it appears that in Elijah's day that the king was doing what was right in his own eyes, according to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30, which is interesting to consider that last week, as we saw in the days of Samson, that every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, and now we see that the king is doing what's right in his own eyes. He did what was right to him. And we're going to see that as we look at Elijah's life, it appears that God was going to do a great work in and through him. So God chose to use Elijah, a man who had enough faith to believe that God could do the impossible. You know, as I was thinking through this last night and I was challenging other pastors, I said, when you get done preaching, it's our job as a pastor, as we proclaim the word of God, to ask this question, how does this relate to my life? It's one thing to get up here and to say all these things from God's Word, but if I don't draw in what the purpose of it is, I've not done my job. It's our job to ask this question, how does this message relate to a 7-year-old? How does it relate to a 70-year-old? How does it relate to a teenager? How does it relate to this young adult? And the reality is I have to ask the question, how does it apply to my life? And as I look at these stories that we'll be going through the last couple weeks and the next couple weeks, they're stories that we've heard a million times in our life. If you've grown up in church at all, you've heard the story of Samson. You've heard the story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. You've heard the story of David and Goliath. You've heard the story, and we could go on and on and on. But the question is, how does it relate to my life today? So that's what I want to kind of just plant a seed in your mind a little bit as we go through this. Because I I agree with John MacArthur. He said one of the greatest travesties in our churches across America is that when the preacher says, turn your Bible to such and such, and as soon as we realize what the passage is, oh, I've heard that before, and we kind of go in coast mode. Fight the urge to go in coast mode. Because there are applications that we have to apply to our heart and our life. You know, as I thought about this, we're not going to go out and grab a jawbone of a donkey and kill thousands of men. That'll kind of land you in a place you don't want to be in. Uh, we're not going to pretend that we're Samson and, you know, kind of push down the pillars of a wall and watch it crumble down. But there are some definite aspects that we can apply to our life. And I want you to think about these two aspects as we go forward this morning faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. I dare say that's one subject that all of us, or two subjects that every one of us, have the opportunity to consider in our life. Do we have faith that God has called us to have 
And are we walking in obedience? These are two aspects that come forth in every trial that we go through. In Samson's day, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. In Elijah's day, according to chapter 16, verse 30, he says, Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all that were before him. There are circumstances going on all around us that we cannot control, right? I mean, there are situations that we wouldn't choose if we could. But every one of us has an opportunity to control how we respond to those circumstances. I can't control whether or not I wake up one morning with cancer. But I absolutely can control how I respond to it. I can't control what another person says or does to me that hurts my feelings. But I can control how I respond to those things. Every one of us are going through circumstances. If we're honest with ourselves, the only difference between your struggle and your struggle, between your sin and your sin, is whether or not how visible it is to others. There are lots of things I've learned over, over the last 25 years of being in ministry, is that there are lots of things that go on behind closed doors that no one else knows about, but you and God know about it. I live next door in Pennsylvania to a man who's one of the biggest sexual predators in Pennsylvania history. Had no clue. I thought I could have picked that thing up in a heartbeat. No, I had no clue. Things go on behind closed doors to people that you know and trust that you have no clue that they're taking place. And we walk into church every Sunday morning and say, Hey, how's it going? Woo, things are going great. We shake hands, we give the fist bump, and boom, we're excited. And you don't know what's going on behind the closed doors of their home. But you have to know that there are struggles. So where does a story like this come in? It comes in the fact that we have to respond in faith and obedience. I can't control what circumstances God allows in my life. But I do know this, is that we do serve a God who is in control of everything, whether we want to accept it or not. And I do know that if God didn't want me to go through it, he wouldn't have allowed it. So therefore, there's a lesson for me to learn. There's a circumstance for me to, to work through. So ask your question, as we're going through this study for the next couple of weeks on God's power on display through man, what is it that he wants you to learn? And how is your faith and obedience towards the circumstance that he allows in our life? So let's look through the story here, if we could, just for a moment. And if I could, let's just pray again and ask God's blessing on it. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, Lord, there are circumstances I'm certain going on all around us, Lord, that I have no clue of. Things that people are struggling with, illnesses, disappointments, struggles, temptations, financial crises, marital issues. Lord, I don't even know. But I'm certain that in a crowd this size that there are struggles that people are facing and they're not sure what to deal, how to deal with them, how to respond to them. And Lord God, I pray that you would take this story, a simple story that probably we've heard dozens of times in our life. And Lord, help us to take those things in the story that we can apply to our hearts and our lives, Lord, and learn from them. And Lord, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves, Lord, this morning. That we'd be honest about who we are and our walk with before you, Lord. And that you'd work in our hearts and our lives to bring us to the place where we need to be. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 17, 
As we said already, Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. And not only was he an evil man, he married an evil woman. And we find out just a verse later, it says, He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. I mean, so it wasn't just as though Ahab was an evil man. He goes and marries an evil woman, and they continue to serve Baal and to worship him. So much so that in verse 32 of chapter 16, he said he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. I mean, can you imagine being in Ahab's shoes or sandals as he stands before God one day? I mean, here he does more to anger God than any other king before him. I don't think he's in a position that I'd want to be in. But as in these circumstances, God will only handle so much and then he's going to act. And we find that he acts through a man by the name of Elijah in chapter 17. So if you would kind of just follow along as I did last week, we're just going to kind of read the story a little bit and draw out some of those things that I think God would have us to learn from. So in chapter 17, verse 1, if you would follow along as I begin reading. Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Can you imagine being Ahab just for a moment here, and he's being told by Elijah that no rain. And you can imagine, yeah, okay, whatever. You think you can control the weather. You think you can control the rain. In so much as you're not even going to allow the dew to come. Okay, whatever. But, verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. Uh, now think about this just for a moment. You've just made a statement that no rain is going to come and God says you need to leave that's probably one of the first commands no problem God I'm out of here Ahab is not a nice guy God if you want me to leave not a problem I'm out of here how willing are we to obey God's word I mean there's one thing to say okay I make this statement against Ahab who's one of the most wicked kings ever God says leave yeah no problem makes sense let's get out of here But how quickly are we willing to obey when it doesn't make sense? How willing are we to to obey when we can't know the outcome of it? Something to think about. It's easy to obey when it makes sense. It's not so easy to obey when it doesn't make sense. But this makes sense. So verse 5 says, So he proceeded to do what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived at the Wadi Cherith, where he enters the Jordan. And the ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and the evening. And he would drink from the Wadi. After a while, the Wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So obviously God had worked through Elijah to say, to, for the statement to make sense and to be true. And God showed himself strong. So he was willing to do what God had told him to do. He confronts Ahab, says there's no going to be no water, no rain, no anything, and then he leaves for a period of time. So Elijah proclaims a famine. But not only does he proclaim a famine, secondly, he proves God's faithfulness. He proclaims a famine, and then he proves God's faithfulness in verses 8-16. through 16. So then the word of the Lord came to him, Get up, go to Zarephath, that belongs in Sidon, and stay there. Look, I've commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. 
So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. And when he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked. Only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I am gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. So here's a really difficult situation, as you can imagine. I mean, but Elijah has been told to go there. He, he obeys. And once again, faith and obedience go hand in hand. He goes there. He obeys. And now he's telling this widow lady to make me some bread. And she's just simply saying, I, I, I don't know how you want me to handle this, but um, I've got just enough for me and my son. We're going to bake it, eat it, and die. Things are desperate. She's a widow. She doesn't have anyone to care for her. But in her mind, this is the end. Things are pretty desperate here. And there's a choice to be made here on both their sides. So she thinks that she's literally going to make the last of her bread, eat it, and die. Verse 13. This is a little bit bold here on Elijah's part. Then Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you make, make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Now stop right there. Don't read on. Stop right there. Isn't it pretty audacious for... Elijah to say, <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but he first. You say, wow, that's pretty audacious. It would be audacious if it wasn't what God had told him to do. You see, sometimes what God tells us to do, I mean, I, I mean honestly, couldn't we just in our minds say, man, I, I can't do this. This is too hard. You're ask, God, you're asking me to take what little bit she's got left and eat it myself. How arrogant would that be? Man, that guy's a jerk. He's going to take everything I got and he wants me to feed him first? Here's a little situation you've got to be dealt with here. Either I'm going to do what God has told me to do or I'm not. And this woman's either going to trust what God has told Elijah or she's not. There's a crisis of situation there. Am I going to take God at his word ultimately or am I not? You see, it's easy to obey when it makes sense. I mean, I've just made a threat against Ahab, and God's telling me to leave. Sure, no problem. But what about obeying when it doesn't make sense? God, you really want me to take what little bit she's got? But, but wait a minute, there's more to the story. Elijah first says, don't be afraid. Sure, I'll just flip that switch off. I won't be afraid anymore just because you say not to. Go and do as I have said. Or as you have said, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. Now, wait a minute. You're, you mean to tell me that if I go use up the rest of this flour and this oil and I need it and I bake it, and I make this bread, and I give you first, that I'm never going to run out? Yep, that's what I'm saying. How many of you would believe that one? 
I mean, think about it. Would you, would, you, would you buy into that story? First of all, you don't know this guy. And he's saying, to give me what I've got, and then I'm going to never run out? She's got a choice to make here. Am I going to do what this guy says or not? Am I going to believe what he says? Am I going to trust that it's never going to run dry? Well, we know the story. So we know the decision that she made. And we know how God worked. So what happens here? Verse 15. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah and her household, ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. So there's a test of our faith, and just know this, that there are going to be circumstances when things look bleak that God's going to call on you to trust him. Will you do it? Will you do it? It's not going to make sense. I am certain that as we're sitting here reading the story, that that's not logical, right? That's not logical for a flower not to run out, for oil not to run out. It's illogical to think that something else can happen. But see what we find out in so many passages in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, that God does what is impossible. He does what's unexpected. He does what's unlikely. Over and over, God shows himself to work in ways that you and I would not. Because that's not how I would work. I'd say, uh, God, if you want me to go find this woman that's supposedly in this area, um, I just want to be able to get there and see like there's like big bales of, or bundles of flour and bags of flour and you know big vats of oil, and then I can see it's going to work out. That's why God says in 2 Corinthians, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. Because what we can see sometimes doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up, so to speak. But God is calling on both of them to take a step of faith here. For Elijah, go, and you'll be cared for. For the woman, trust me, just make it for me first, and then you'll have plenty. God sometimes calls us to do what doesn't make sense. I mean, I've said this for years. I'm amazed that churches can have peace. We have so many backgrounds, so many different people, so many different opinions, so many different backgrounds, and yet we have peace. That's what God says we're supposed to have, right? But when selfishness evades, when, or creeps in, and when jealousy creeps in, or when pride comes in, that's when the problems come. God calls us to be selfless and to walk in faith. So, Elijah proclaims a famine. It happens. Elijah proves God's faithfulness over and over. Number three, Elijah prays over the widow's son. We see another way that God is using him. We see this in chapter 17, verses 17 and following. So after this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness got, a, got worse until he stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, Man of God, why are you here? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? Now stop right there. I read that over and over. I've read this story many, many times and I missed that before. I don't know why I missed it, but I missed it. 
she's basically making a statement. Is God judging me for my sin? Is that why he's dead? Are you here to call out my iniquity? The fact that there's something in my past that, that God is somehow judging me for and that's why my son has died? Is that why you're here, Elijah? Why did you really come? <coughs> but Elijah said to her, <clears throat> Give me your son. So he took him from her arms, brought him up the upper stairs room, or to the upstairs room where he was staying, and laid him on his own bed. Elijah's got a little situation going on here. I mean, who grabs a dead body, brings him up the stairs? What are you going to do with him, Elijah? I kind of asked the question, what are you going to do with him? Well, Elijah's not going to do anything but pray. And I find that's a good place to start when we're going through struggles and disappointments. Verse 20, Then he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Even Elijah doesn't understand this one. He doesn't know what's going on. God, God I, don't, I don't get this one, God. I mean, okay, you tell me to come here. You tell me to speak up against Ahab. I did that. You tell me to come to the widow's lady's house. I did that. You, but killing her son? That, that's another situation that doesn't make sense. Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. Kind of get a visual of what's going on. He spreads himself out over the boy three times. And he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life come unto him again. And so the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy's life came into him again and he lived. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful that if every time you prayed, God just says, yeah, let's do it. Wouldn't that be great? Anybody not want that? Every time I pray, God listens and he does what I ask him to do. Wouldn't that be wonderful? God doesn't always work that way. But God does always work in a way that brings himself glory. Because he knows what's best. Sometimes we pray for life to be restored and he doesn't do it. Sometimes we pray for health to be restored, and he doesn't do it. Sometimes we pray for financial needs to be met, and he doesn't do it. Is he still nonetheless God? Because he knows what's best. And sometimes what's best for us is for him not to answer our prayer, or to say, wait. Sometimes he doesn't answer the way we want him to. But this time he chose to listen to Elijah's prayer. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upstairs room into the house, and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and that the Lord's word from your mouth is true. Why did God do what he did? So that she would believe that God is true, that God is alive, that God is at work, and what Elijah was doing is for real. So he prays over the widow's son, and God restores life. And then a fourth thing Elijah does. He presents himself to Ahab, chapter 18. After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. 
The famine was severe, God's word says. It was, it was a difficult time for in the land here with all the famine that's going on. No rain for a period of years. And now God is saying to present. So what happens here in the story? I won't take time to read it all. But Ahab, I remember, but Elijah goes out and he runs into a man by the name of Obadiah. And Obadiah is a man who, according to God's word, feared the Lord and lived for the Lord. He says he greatly feared the Lord and took on a hundred prophets. So Obadiah is trying to take things into his own hands as well. Uh, he's trying to, he takes these hundred people who are still followers of God and puts 50 in this cave and 50 in this cave. And, and he's, you know, he thinks he's helping God out here a little bit. Because God needs help. And so he goes and he runs into Elijah and Elijah says, Hey, I want you to go, uh, since you work for the king Ahab and since you're one of his right hand men, I want you to go let Ahab know that I want to see him. Now remember, Ahab is not a great, good guy. He said, you've done more to anger God than any other king before you. And Obad, Obadiah, um, once again, some commands are easy to obey. Other commands, not so much. Look at chapter 18, verse 9. But Obadiah said, What sin have I committed that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? He said, Elijah, do you understand what you're asking me to do? You were the one that told the king that it would not rain for, for years until, you, until the word of the Lord works and spoke through you. And now you want me to go tell him that you're going to come? What happens if you don't go? If you don't show up, he's going to surely put me to death. What have I done to deserve to have to do this? <laughs> this is a death sentence in his mind. <clears throat> Verse 10, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent someone to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made that kingdom or nation swear they had not found you. Now you say, go tell the Lord Elijah is here. When you leave and the Spirit leaves, they'll kill me. I mean, he's taking this serious. Down, down in verse 14, he says, Now you say, go tell your Lord Elijah's here. He will kill me. Then he says it again, over and over. Verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one who is ruining Israel? Ahab's just a little bit upset. It's you. It's you who's ruining Israel. And all of no, out of nowhere, Elijah just gets a breath of boldness. And he replied, verse 18, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have. Because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Can you imagine? I mean, this is a death wish, so to speak. Confronting the most wicked man who's ever lived to this point. But remember, Elijah proclaimed a famine and God worked. Elijah proved God's faithfulness with the widow woman and God worked. Elijah prayed over the widow's son and God worked. Elijah presented himself to Ahab and God is going to work. And now Elijah pleads the power of God and he's going to show himself strong. We see this. So he commands Ahab to send out 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 
850 people who are against him. Anybody want to now take that command that he gave earlier and run? I think maybe my hand's up. Don't know that I want to be in that battle, but here's the problem. Or here's the situation. It's not Elijah's problem. It's God's. Because he's doing it against God. Not against Elijah. So here's what happens. Last part of the story. Verse 22. Actually, verse 21. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. I think there are times in our lives where we have to make up our mind. Right? There are times that we have to really come down to brass tacks where the rubber meets the road and say, am I going to trust God or not? Because there are so many options on the table. There really is. For every one of us. We can remain true to God and what we know is right, even though we don't feel it, even though we don't sense it, even though we may not feel like this is the right way. But we know from God's word it is. Now are we going to take God at his word based off what we know, not what we feel, but what we know and trust him? Or will we waver? And Elijah simply asked this question, how long will you waver between two? Either he is God or he is God. But they can't both be God. And I think there's times in our life where we have to make that decision. Either he's God or he's not. Either he's on the throne or he's not. Either he's real or he's not. Make up your mind. Be committed. But we're about to see who's God and who's not. So, here's your choice. Bring out your 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. We're going to have two altars. Both going to have a sacrifice on them. If your God is real then call out fire from heaven and destroy it. But if my God be real, you're going to realize who is God. So, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now question, was he the only one left? Remember this man named Obadiah, just a couple verses back? He, trying to work for the Lord as if God needed help, hides a hundred men who are devoted to God. Fifty in this cave, fifty in this cave. Elijah really didn't need to, I mean, Elijah's mind, he's the only one, but we're never alone. We are never alone. We may feel alone, but we're not. Verse 23, Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and place it on the wood, but not put no light but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bowl and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you can call on the name of your God, small g, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God, big g, who answers with fire. He is God. He's confident that his God's going to work. He's confident that God's going to show himself strong. Can I just say that's where we should be? Confident that God is at work? Confident that God will answer? So what happens? Verse 24, Then call on the name of your God. Verse 25, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Since you are so numerous, 
Choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. He says, you guys get to go first. You guys can choose the bowl you want and cut it up, and you get first opportunity to call down the fire from heaven. I'll let you go first. So they took the bowl, verse 26, that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us! But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they had made. And Elijah still is pretty confident. Look what he does in verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them and he said, Shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. So they shouted loudly. And cut themselves with knives and spears according to their customs until the blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered and no one paid attention. I mean, they're doing everything in their might to make something happen. They're dancing around. And when that didn't work, they shouted loudly. That didn't work. They began to cut themselves to their gushing blood. That didn't work. All the way from morning till evening. And nothing happens as far as the gods of Baal. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. So they weren't just not hearing anything from their God. They were messing with Elijah's altar that God was going to work through. So they built it back up. So Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next he arranged the wood, cut up the bull and placed it on the wood. He said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to the burned, to be burned on the wood. Now think about it. If that was gas, it'd be burnable. But he's dousing the wood and the calf with water. So they poured all over. And he said a second time, and they did it a second time. And then he said a third time, and they did it a third time. Verse 35, so the water ran all around the altar, even filled the trench with water. Now, how likely is an offer, the altar, to be burnt up when it's all wet? Water doesn't burn, right? We all we kind of understand that simple principle. Verse 36. At the time for the offering, the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and at your word... I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and leaked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Can you imagine having witnessed that just for a moment? It's kind of amazing. As you look up images, I thought about putting that image up on the screen. I thought, I ain't going to waste the time. But just the media, the paintings that have been done, 
to try to depict what has taken place is amazing. Not only did it fire come, but it burnt up the calf, the wood, the stones, and the water in the trench left nothing behind. Can you imagine the fear that overcame the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah? Can you imagine just for a moment the fear, the trembling, what they had just witnessed? God displaying his power because Elijah had enough faith to believe that he could and that he would. Verse 40, then Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let even one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down into the ground and put his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, Go up and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. And on the seventh time he reported, There's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Then Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. Verse 45, In a little while the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got into his chariot and went to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord was on Elijah, and he tucked his his mantle under his belt, and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. God worked. God worked miraculously. Let's say for a moment you were writing the story. How would you end it? Mine would kind of be like, there'd be like these fighter jets coming over, dropping bombs. You know. Nobody escapes. But I'm not God. And God ends the story how he wants to end it. But it's really not about the ending. It's about the journey to get there. All of us are on a different journey. All of us have different struggles that we're facing. All of us have situations we don't know how to handle. I think I think that's true, right? All of us have circumstances that we wouldn't choose, but God has allowed for whatever reason. And then we read a story about a man named Elijah who calls down the fire from heaven. I think it starts with the little things. The day-to-day. You see, it started off with just, I want you to just open your mouth for me. And then from opening his mouth, it goes to, hey, I want you to go over here, another step of obedience. And when you get there, there's going to be a widow woman there. Okay, he he does that. And then all of a sudden it got a little bit more substantial. The woman's son dies. And he cries out to God and he says, I don't understand this, but God, you've got to bring life back. Let's God use him. And then he confronts Ahab again and all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. See, the steps of obedience build. The steps of faith build. And I think in all these stories, there's still the same two factors, faith and obedience. And there's little questions along the way. Am I God or am I not? How long are you going to waver between two gods? 
And I think that's a question all of us have to answer. We're either going to put our anchor and our hope and our faith and our trust in God that we know is real, or we're going to be distracted and put it into things of this world. There's no middle ground. That's why Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Anyone else can do what they want to do. Everyone else can decide how they want. But for me, I'm going to do this. And if we half-heartedly go to God in prayer, but don't really believe He's going to work, ask this question, why would He? Why would He? Hebrews reminds us that they that come to God must what first believe that He exists, and that He is going to reward them that diligently seek Him. Let me just speak for myself. There have been times in my life where I prayed because I had this situation I'm going through and I was really good at praying for once or twice or three or four times. I didn't get an answer. Didn't see that God was really interested in helping me, so I just kind of forget about it. Next day. I think there's something to the word diligently. It says, they that come to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards them that diligently seek Him. So we add that to the process that, God, I don't know how you're going to work. I don't know when you're going to work, but I'm going to trust that you will. And I'm going to keep praying until you do. I'm going to keep seeking your face until you do. I'm going to keep trusting you until you do something. Do we diligently seek Him? I think Elijah was in a situation where he had to diligently seek him. For three years, he's out in the wilderness, right? Always watching him behind his back. Make sure that none of Ahab's men are there. Ahab, change what you said. You said, until you speak again, you better start speaking. I'm going to kill you. Don't think that wasn't running through his mind. I'm certain it was. It would be for mine. But then James says, Either we don't pray or we pray to consume it upon our own lusts. In other words, we have selfish motivation for asking what we want. God says, that's not how I operate. I don't have to prove anything to you. I'm God. What's our motive in asking what we want? Matthew chapter 13, I believe it is. I could be wrong. Matthew 13, where he goes into his own village. And he begins to do great things. And everybody around says, Who does this guy think he is? Isn't that just Jesus, the carpenter's son? Isn't that just Jesus, the son of Mary? And he says that they got angry with him. Who does this guy think he is? And in verse 58, I believe it is, he says, And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You see, if you don't really expect God to do something, you won't be disappointed. If you don't expect God to work, you won't be disappointed. See, faith is not a one-time deal. It's a daily deal. Asking Him to work is not a once-in-a-while thing. It's an all-the-time thing. It's daily saying, God, I surrender my will to yours. You do as you choose. I'll trust you. That's not always easy. But it's what's right. I was sharing with the guys last night, with this I'll close. I've said it several times over the last several months. <clears throat> God challenged me in this area. 
to just take another step in my faith, to trust him to do what I can't do, to see his hand at work. I've been in church since the time I can remember. I've heard all the stories, and the problem with that is that that's what it is. If we're not careful, it's a routine. If we're not careful, it's just something we do. If we're not careful, we just kind of go through the motions for all of us. But to keep God fresh and alive in our lives, to keep close to him, and to keep growing in our faith, that's sometimes a challenge. And I just came to that conclusion in November. Lord, I want to see more. I'm not satisfied. I want to see your hand at work. I want to see greater things happen. I just want to see more. I'm not telling you what to do. In fact, I really don't even have one specific thing in mind. I just want to see you work. I want to know that you're more than a name on a page of paper in a book. So I committed to praying more. And we came here, and I was telling the guys last night that came, a couple guys that came, there are times that we just kind of go through valleys, ups and downs. Pray more, pray less. Pray more, pray less. But there are times I just don't feel like praying. You ever been there? Just don't feel like praying. I'll be honest with you, last night was one of them. I just didn't feel like coming. In fact, I don't have my phone on me. I sent a text out to the guys as I send out. I said, uh, if you're dying, you're in a hospital, you're incapacitated or just watching a good TV show, I get it. Don't come. Because if it was up to me, I really didn't want to come last night. I had a headache for three days. I don't usually get headaches. took three naps this last week. I haven't taken three naps in the last ten years. Went to bed, woke up just as tired as I went to bed. I was just, I don't know what's going on. Until I found out, I told my wife, I said, look at this medication that the doctor just put me in, just as we're driving down the road. Yep, side effects. 77% of people on this medication experience severe uh, fatigue. Extreme fatigue. Thanks. That's what I need. Extreme fatigue. Thank you, God. Just what I wanted. And I'm just exhausted this week from the stupid medication that they put me on. As a result, I didn't want to come last night. But I came. Because I said, I'm making up my mind that I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I don't care how tired I am. I don't care whether I feel like it or not. I'm just going to do it. Because I believe that God works through prayer. And we've seen Him work. More in the last several months than I've seen in a long time. So guys, just so you know, you all got prayed for last night. You all got prayed for. By name. We lifted you up to God's throne last night. Why? Because I believe that God's going to work. If you don't believe that God's at work, if you don't have faith and trust that he's going to work, one of two things has to happen. Either A, you need to repent and say, God, forgive me, and I'm going to... I'm asking you for greater faith. Or you need to start praying saying, God, do it because I can't. Or not at all. Either he's at work or he's not. Either he's God or he's not. Either he's faithful or he's not. But you can't sit on a fence. You can't sit on a fence. It accomplishes nothing. Let me throw one more thing out just for bonus and it's free. 
Psalm 66.18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know what it means to regard iniquity? I know there's this sin issue that I'm dealing with, but I'll deal with it later. I know God has convicted me about it, but I don't want to deal with it right now. I just don't feel like it. I know there's this sin, but eh, it's not that big a deal. I know there's this situation, but eh, later. God says, if I regard, in other words, that word regard means to hold it in and to not deal with it. He says, the Lord will not hear me. So I wonder how often we pray, throw the Hail Marys up and say, God, will you do this? And God is saying, you're asking me to bless your life. You're asking me to answer your prayer. But you're not willing to deal with this sin. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. That becomes real. And I got to tell you how many times I've heard people say, I pray and I just don't see any change. Are you dealing with sin? Because God says, if you're not willing to deal with the sin, you're not going to get the blessing. That's just scripture. Proverbs 28 says, He that covereth a matter shall not prosper. There's issues that you're trying to just not push aside and not deal with. God says, I'm not going to bless you. It challenges us to draw in fellowship with him. And let me just say this, just so we're clear. Just because I deal with my sin doesn't mean God's going to give me what I want. It doesn't work that way. I wish it did. Because there's times I say, God, forgive me of my sins, cleanse my heart. And according to 1 John 1, 9, he says, he that confesses his sins is faithful and just forgive, right? Cleanse us. So there's nothing between me and the Savior. Now give me what I want. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if it worked that way? That'd be awesome, right? And God's still saying, but I know what's best. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know if you're struggling. I, I just assume because we're all human. Say, so, you cut me, I bleed red just like you do. We all struggle. We all have our issues. None of us are perfect. But what is it that's hindering your walk with God? What is it that's distracting you from drawing closer to Him? <laughs> the world has all kinds of things that get in the way. Desires, wants, problems, fill in the blank. They're always going to be there. But I'll come back to that last question. How long will you waver between two gods? The gods of the world or the gods, the real God? How long will you waver? Make up your mind. Make up your mind to put your faith and trust in him. Submit to his leadership and his authority. Submit to him in every aspect and see what he may do.